0: Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Alright, everybody, welcome back to the Patricia Highsmith Book Club.
1: To the Sad Lesbian Cry Fest Book Club for another edition of That Bitch Was Upset. They were fucking gay. <laughs> they were fucking gay! <laughs> God, I just can't resist a gay book film adaptation. What am I? Like, I'm just me.
0: Every time I think I'm out, Lizzie pulls me back in again with Patricia Highsmith.
1: I gotta tell you, I had no intention to ever read this book. This film and book were never really on my radar until all of a sudden. It was like one of those things where... The film like came up in a conversation at, at a bar I had with a friend, and then like I saw the book at a bookstore and I was like, oh, Patricia Highsmith wrote that. And then like one other reference came up, where someone made like a joke about Tom Ripley and like stealing an identity, and I was like, okay, fine, universe, I will do the talented Mr. Ripley. And I started by buying the book off of thrift thrift books, and I actually brought the book on a little vacation that we took together, and that mm-hmm. was like my beach read. Mm-hmm. And I have the book here today. I love buying from thrift books because the book's already, like, worn in.
0: Yeah, you don't have to be precious with yeah. it.
1: And I I annotated the shit out of it. Y'all can, like, hear, ASMR. hear all the notes. Yeah, bookie ASMR. I love. But yeah, really enjoyed the book. Super excited to be here today. But yeah, I guess before we jump into it, just want to throw it over some gratitude to our patrons.
0: Thank you so much. To the people who have subscribed and uh, given us money over on Patreon.com, we really appreciate you guys. We have a special that we're running, actually, Lizzie.
1: Yeah, so we have a couple of different tiers, and our top tier patrons are at the gayest level, we call them. And at that level, you get to vote every month on one of the main feed episodes that we do. So if you bump yourself up or join at the gayest level on our Patreon, we will send you a new and improved... Subtextual hat, we have green. we have black. Shield your eyes from the sun. Shield your face from paparazzi. Yes. while you're at brunch because <laughs> you will
0: definitely look like a celebrity <laughs> wearing this baseball hat. It is fashionable. it's it's atop my head as I speak. It's very comfortable, and I love
1: it. Yes, yeah, so do that in the months of March or April and bet you get a hat. But enough about that. The talented Mr. Ripley. Um, Sam, had you seen this film before? What do you think of it watching it again?
0: Yes, I had seen this film many years ago. I had like promptly forgot about it after I watched it, which I thought was odd. And then when I rewatched it recently for this episode, it made very, very clear sense to me why I put it behind me. Cause mm-hmm. I love horror movies, you guys. I love thrillers, I love psychological thrillers, I love all of that. I had to step away from this film several times. The way that it induced a level of anxiety in me that I have never experienced. Like, my cortisol was off the charts. Every five minutes, I'm like leaving the room because I can't fucking take it. And I think that's why I watched the movie and like put it away in my mind and never revisited it because it's so incredibly
1: stressful. Were there any like images or scenes or whatever tones or lines that came back to you whenever you were re watching it for the podcast? Every
0: time I saw Kate Blanchett, it was
1: like a jump scare. <laughs> I was like, fucking run, R- run away. I know she's like just a like a white rabbit, like just peer and like blink 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 blink. Mm-hmm. She's like, wow, I'm gonna incriminate you, blink, blink. The perfect prey, dude. <laughs> no. Well, reading the book too was, was a very similar experience. Like all of Patricia Highsmith's novels, like nothing much happens, but you were so nervous the Ugh. entire time nothing is happening. Yes. And that was very much my experience with reading this book. So I'm glad I read it like on a beach because I could just like look up and be like, I'm okay. Everything's fine. <sighs> I use
0: my real identity and I'm fine. Yeah. Wait, okay. So Patricia Highsmith, of course, wrote Carol correct
1: yes patricia highsmith if you did not know and had not listened to our carol episode she wrote the book the price of salt which later was released as carol and became the book carol and she's she's a fantastic novelist i wanted to talk a little bit about her because i realized i didn't really do like so much of a deep dive on her as an author when we did the carol episode and she is fascinating tell me more i'm my interest is piqued so patricia highsmith she was born in the twenties. And uh, she published this book, The Talented Miss Ripley, in 1955. So she was only 34 when she wrote it and was only 27 when her first book, Strangers on a Train, was released. So she was a very early talent. She was well-educated and cranked out 22 novels, eight books of short stories, and more than 8,000 pages of diaries and journals in her life. She was constantly writing.
0: Okay, you guys can't see this, but my mouth is
1: agape. (laughs) holy shit she was a workhorse wow and she from accounts of people that knew her she's now since passed but um, apparently she was a very interesting woman to say the least Um, she hated people good for her Uh, she preferred to spend hours with her pet snails than with actual human beings she was depressed she was an alcoholic she was nasty to everyone and she was a lesbian (laughs) you know I
0: couldn't remember if she was gay or not. I don't know if we touched on it so much when we did the Carol episode, which was like all of the third episode we'd ever done on this podcast. But I think it's really amazing to hear that you're saying she was kind of a recluse because her dialogue is so genuine. Like reading The Price of Salt, it didn't sound contrived in any way. But also if you're a shut-in and you don't speak to people very often, you have to kind of really understand your characters in depth to know how they would speak to each other
1: yeah i wonder if she like only left her house in order to like gather information on how people speak to each other Mm -hmm. because by all accounts she like would go out to dinner parties but would be like so rude and unpleasant that (laughs) most people wouldn't really want to spend too much time with her and yeah and she was for being a recluse she was really open about her sexuality like most of her love affairs, though they were short, she never really had, like, a long, meaningful relationship. It was mostly these, like, flings with married women. They were usually pretty public. Like, she really didn't make an effort to hide her sexuality. And I found this quote from Phyllis Nagy, who is the screenwriter of Todd Haynes' Carol, uh, who described Highsmith as a lesbian who did not very much enjoy being around other women.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay, could I possibly see a photograph of her?
1: I have... Two excellent photos to show you of Patricia Highsmith.
0: She's cute. Yeah, she's hot. I, I mean, you described her as like a woman that didn't like other women. So I was expecting, I don't know what I was expecting. But okay, so I'm seeing one photograph where she's kind of giving Annie Leibovitz, uh She's got like a short bob, black hair. She's got a smile on her face in one of them, which seems contrary to her. Your description of her and then in another photograph she's holding like a siamese cat that looks just like my cat <laughs> in these like strong dikey arms <laughs> i don't know she thinks she's like precious i understand why she doesn't like people
1: i mean she had no trouble seducing women mm. she seduced like mostly upper class mostly married women and had like these high profile affairs Sometimes multiple women at a time. Yeah, she got around town. Which makes Carol feel all that more real. Which actually, like, you said that Carol was our third episode, and you're so right. I did research so differently back in the early days, but I found I found the story that, like, ties into Carol and how it is semi-autobiographical. Ooh. So in her 20s, before she, like, pretty much started exclusively dating women, she did try to date a few men. Uh, She described being with men as steel wool to the face, Um, but she was in a relationship with a man, and she intended to marry him, though she could barely tolerate him. And she actually underwent six months of conversion therapy with a psychoanalyst in order to try to cure herself, quote-unquote, before eventually just, like, calling the whole thing off, dumping the man. And um, to afford these therapy sessions, however, she ended up taking— like a holiday sales position at Bloomingdale's in the toy store department. Stop. Which, if you've seen Carol, sounds very much like the premise of the entire film. And so um, that inspired her to write The Price of Salt, which was her second book ever. And she actually uh, released under a a pseudonym because she was, I guess, for a book that has like a happy ending, quote unquote, for gay people, it wasn't really like something couth to do for your career at the time. Imagine. I am fangirling.
0: (laughs) That is incredible. Yeah. The second book that you write is so gay and fantastic that you have to write it under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. And then you go on to write like 80 more novels or some shit. Uh, I am such a huge fan of her. It's only solidified more that she has Siamese cats because <laughs> I relate to that bitch on another level now. Owning Siamese cat. cats is like a specific lesbian like subculture
1: my first pet was a Siamese cat (laughs) (laughs) just saying um so yeah I feel like enthralled by Patricia Highsmith how I felt enthralled researching Anne Rice when we were doing the interview with the vampire episode Mm -hmm. both of these women are so like um so starkly different from what women at the at their time were supposed to be and they both wrote novels within genres that could have been really limiting with Anne Rice writing, like, supernatural stories, like I mentioned, Interview with the Vampire, and Patricia Highsmith mostly writing thrillers and mysteries. They were never boxed in by the genre. They were ones to, like, push it and produce something incredible beyond what the scope of that genre would allow. One of the things I noticed about Carol, and then I also noticed with Talented Mr. Ripley... Having read both of those now, one thing that Patricia Highsmith does within the crime genre of novels is that she gives like a direct empathy to the quote unquote criminal character. Mm-hmm. So in in Carol, that would be Carol Ayard, who's at the time literally being put under legal duress in order to maintain... Custody of her child because she's homosexual. And then for Talented Mr. Ripley, most of the book, you're just in Ripley's head Mm -hmm. and you're getting his side of what it's like to come from like a lower class position and being quote unquote forced into crimes. There's one particular passage of the book very early on in Talented Mr. Ripley, page 33. I want to like read a short portion of this, but it kind of shows how hard she works to like humanize these not only queer characters, but characters who are in the wrong and literally committing crimes, Mm -hmm. Um, like, you're on their side throughout. So I have a short passage for you to read. This passage in the book comes very close to the beginning. It's um, once Ripley has been given the task by Dickie's father to go to Europe and bring Dickie back. This is when Ripley first gets onto the boat that's going to take him to Italy, and he walks into his room on the boat and notices a fruit basket on the bed. The basket
0: had a tall handle, and it was entirely under yellow cellophane. Apples and pears and grapes and a couple of candy bars and several little bottles of liqueurs. Tom had never received a Bon Voyage basket. To him, they had always been something you saw in a florist's window for fantastic prices and laughed at. Now he found himself with tears in his eyes, and he put his face down in his hands and suddenly began to sob.
1: Like, at this point in the story, you kind of know Ripley's like a amateur con artist so we already know right off the bat he's like kind of pulling the wool over Dickie Greenlee's father's eyes Mm -hmm. and yet we're getting this super humanizing moment where he's getting a glimpse at this like luxurious life that he never got to have Mm -hmm. and that's one thing I will say I really missed from the film.
0: I think that although I have not read the book as you have the film does a very interesting thing where the film doesn't humanize the protagonist and then put them in these situations where we're rooting for them. We see a pretty human protagonist at the beginning, and he only furthers this narrative of himself as a criminal, but the more crime and insanity that he creates, the chaos that he creates for himself, the more you feel tied to
1: him. Right, so you ended up in the version of Tom Ripley in the film, do you end up liking him in the end? It's not a trick question. I really am curious because the one thing about reading the book before watching the film is that like you come in with this already made perspective. So I am curious what your perspective is.
0: I wouldn't say that I liked him so much as that I wanted him to get away. Yeah. I just wanted him to be fine. I just wanted him to run and be okay.
1: Yeah. To not get trapped up. That's very interesting. Whenever we get to the end of the film, we'll talk about how the book ends differently from the film and and maybe conjecture like why the filmmakers would have chosen yeah. to do it differently because – I and I do think it's interesting you still came out with that perspective. So long story short, suffice to say I think the book is excellent. I actually ordered uh, the second in the Ripley series. There's five books that she wrote with the Tom Ripley character and I can't wait to read the second one. However, this film adaptation was not my fave. I did enjoy watching the film and breaking it down, but this is not really a film I feel like I will revisit.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: How do you feel about that?
0: I wouldn't have watched it again unless it was for this episode. Not because the story itself is not good or intricate enough or the characters don't have enough depth. It's that I was on edge the entire time. And I'm not sure if you feel that exact same level of anxiety when you're reading the book, But I personally have a disdain for situations in film, the cinematic trope where they can get away and for some reason they don't. Right. He had about five different opportunities after some pretty incriminating stuff happened for him to get away. Not to mention all the various opportunities he had to break free from a pretty stupid situation. He never took the out and that never made sense to me.
1: Yeah, the Tom Ripley character in the book is so much more calculated and smart, though he's not, like, apathetic. Like, he feels all the stress and emotion, but he's more of a chameleon. Like, he will actually put on the skin of Tom Ripley when he needs and then put on the persona of Dickie when he needs and put on the persona of whatever version of those two characters he needs to be, whereas this one felt like (laughs) Matt Damon's character of Tom Ripley was just trying to, like, casually bumble his way through and just... He was smart about it. He was a good actor, but he mostly got lucky. It's not like he planned yeah. how he would respond and react with the exception of maybe writing the suicide note. <laughs> but in the book, so much is him remembering and calculating and presenting and non-presenting and and literally putting on a show. There's like lots of language in the book about going on or putting on or practicing and um, working on his his personas in the mirror and and how he slouches in his body language. And it's just interesting.
0: The only scene where I felt really impressed by Tom Ripley was when he manufactured that meeting of Meredith and Marge. Yeah, I couldn't see where he was going and I just wanted him to run away. But he had them both meet at that cafe and it implied that it implied that Dicky was in Rome, Dicky was cheating on Marge with Meredith. Meredith is there to tell Marge, "Hey, forget about him, you know. He's going home back to wherever." And it's such a incredible plan to have all these people kind of disperse from an area that you want to be able to leave. That's the only time I was actually impressed with his intellect.
1: And even then, it kind of felt like he just got a little bit lucky.
0: Yes. Again, it was a lot of circumstance. Like they
1: just happened to be seated at tables next to each other. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? But you're right. He did orchestrate that in some way. So yeah, this adaptation, and there have been other adaptations of this book, and there is another adaptation coming out in the next year that I'm actually really excited about. Ooh, is it the original or is it a sequel? It's a retelling, a complete retelling, a limited series of the first book um, directed by Steve Zalian, who you definitely know, but you don't know. he's He wrote Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Schindler's List, Mission Impossible, and like a ton of works alongside Scorsese and Aaron Sorkin. This guy's like a pro fucking screenwriter. But this version is going to be starring Andrew Scott as Tom Ripley. Andrew Scott is Hot Priest from Fleabag. <sighs> And oh. uh, Moriarty from Sherlock, yeah. and an actor I'm literally obsessed with. Well, who's going to be Dickie? Dicky is going to be Johnny Flynn, who's in um, the latest Jane Austen Emma adaptation.
0: I guess also an issue I took with this film is that I could have stood for Tom Ripley and Dickie Greenleaf to look a little more similar out mm-hmm. of the box.
1: Mm-hmm. You know I totally mean? agree. Yeah, because that is a huge part of the book that he's able to get away with the persona. Is that, like, they look startlingly alike?
0: Yeah, because I know so many white men that can, if they do their hair the same, could be unmistakable by their passport photo. These two people, Matt Damon and Jude Law, don't, Mm-mm. unfortunately.
1: Maybe that was, like, somewhat intentional. But, like, lighting your hair, Matt Damon, does not make you look like like Jude Law. <laughs> no offense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about this adaptation because Andrew Scott is also actually gay. And I think that they'll bring a layer to the film that hopefully isn't so toxic. TBD. <laughs> All right. Let's get into the plot.
0: Let's get into the movie.
1: Dickie Greenley?
0: It's Tom. Tom Ripley. Tom Ripley? We were at Princeton together.
1: How do you do? It'll
0: just be for a little while.
1: No, I like him.
0: Marge, you like everybody. Marge. You
1: like everybody. You uh, stay at Dickie's house, eat Dickie's food, wear his clothes, and his father picks up the tab. What did you actually do in New York? Telling lies, forging signatures, uh, impersonating practically anybody. Okay, if this movie has anything going for it, it's its fucking smoking hot cast.
0: Everyone is hot except for Philip Seymour Hoffman. But he does what he (laughs) has to do. He does what he always does, and he plays an asshole. He does it
1: very well. Oh, this is like the most asshole he's ever played, and I've seen The Master like three times. Does he ever play a nice guy? On The Hunger Games, he plays an asshole who is actually a nice guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess you're right. Magnolia, he plays a nice guy.
0: Think about it. Boogie Nights, he's kind of a buffoon. Hmm. And then obviously The Master, and
1: then... Jesse Plemons took it up and was like, I'm going to be the nice guy, Dad. (laughs) That's his son, right? No. No. (laughs) Oh, I always think that's his son. Because of the
0: master, he plays, Jesse Plemons plays.
1: And they look uncannily alike.
0: Yeah, his actual son is the guy from Licorice Pizza.
1: Ew! We're not going there. Not going there. So yeah, star, faking studded cast. We got Matt Damon, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Cake Blanket, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Jake Davenport, which you don't know that name, but you know that face. We'll come back to him later. (laughs) This film was directed and written by Anthony Mingala, who was a great director. He directed Truly Madly Deeply, The English Patient, Cold Mountain, and a series of other very serious works. Truly Madly Deeply?
0: You mean the hit single by Savage Garden?
1: (laughs) No. Okay, great. (laughs) I mean, a film... (laughs) nothing to do with savage garden that's a bummer for me (laughs) have they ever taken a song and made it into a movie scott pilgrim
0: was a song by Plumtree that inspired the comic book that inspired the film it's kind of close
1: yeah all right so we meet tom ripley played by matt damon who is a nice plain young man working in new york city he is a bathroom attendant and moonlights as a piano player when he needs to He works near high society and obviously yearns to be one of them. We love to yearn. Um, A couple of people who were considered for the part of Ripley before Matt Damon included Leonardo DiCaprio, of course, and Tom Cruise. No duh. I personally would have really liked to see Tom Cruise in this. No. No, Lizzie. There's no
0: one that looks... I'm I'm getting mad that they cast Matt Damon who doesn't look like Jula. Tom Cruise,
1: come on. It would have to be another dicky because those two don't be looking alike i feel like <sighs> dicaprio is a little closer yeah he would have been closer that also would have been pretty fantastic mm-hmm. so yeah for the role matt damon just a little fun fact he lost 30 pounds and learned to play the piano and apparently this was his favorite role he ever did though i could not find a source on that is this after goodwill hunting this is after goodwill hunting in fact goodwill hunting is what got him the job anthony mingala saw that film and was like That's the boy for me. It's not your fault. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's my. No, I've seen the film. (laughs) Sam's like, it is my fault. (laughs) It's my fault. I hate the movie. Uh, Okay, so Ripley meets a stuffy rich man named Mr. Greenleaf who mistakes Ripley as a Princeton graduate and asks him to go to Italy to persuade his spoiled son Dickie to return home to America. Time out. He sees Ripley playing the
0: piano. He's like, come see me at the shipyard. And before Ripley even knows about the money or the circumstance, he goes and sees him at the shipyard. Why?
1: Because I, he works in a bathroom. He's like, maybe this guy will put me in the bathroom boat job
0: of my dreams. I hope that in the book it's a little clearer, but it seems it like Ripley elects to do such random shit.
1: There is some stuff that's like, okay, that's a callback to the book, but you didn't do all these other callbacks that would have made sense to build the character. Mm-hmm. This was one of them. Okay. Because I was like, okay, yeah, sure. You go to a fucking
0: shipyard when you have like three jobs working in bathrooms. You're like, time to go to the shipyard to, read a, to meet a
1: stranger. Maybe this is what you did in the 40s. You just <laughs> met people at shipyards. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> so Mr. Greenleaf offers them a thousand bucks, which is a lot of money, um, to go to Europe to bring Dickie back. And so he's like, fuck yeah. Never been to Europe. That's what he says. He says, "Back, yeah. Let's get out of Boston. <laughs> That's, so you do like Goodwill hunting. I love it. Um, okay, so at the station when he arrives in Italy, Ripley, for fun, pretends to be Dickie Greenleaf to a young American woman he meets at the station. Eh, mistake number one. If he hadn't done this, he could have avoided the whole oh. <gasps> thing. You're right. This is the first fatal flaw. And this one he just kind of does like on a whim. Mm-hmm. Like to be like, ooh, this will be fun. If he never told... Meredith
0: Logue, that he was fucking dicky, this would have never been an issue because she's the one that's like around every corner being like, time to incriminate you. (laughs) Fucking she scares me. Every time I see her in this movie, I get scared. Wait, I thought you were scared for her,
1: not of her. I'm scared of her. Oh my God. What? I see her like, ah, run. That makes no... She triggers my fight or flight. That's crazy. I would run to her and be like, we're together forever now. No. Kate Blanchett. In this role. I'm Tom. Oh, you're Tom. If I'm Tom. You're a little gay twink that's like, ew, no. I just want to be a rich boy. I don't want to date
0: girls. Yeah, she's around every corner, like. Dickie Greenleaf is at this boat. She's on every boat.
1: On every boat. I'm afraid of boats and I'm afraid of her. Trains, boats, planes, (laughs) not safe. Taxis. I'm going Mm -mm. everywhere on foot. (laughs) (laughs) Walking to Italy. (laughs) So, Meredith Logue is obviously played by Kate Blanchett. She's wealthy, she's bubbly, she's stunning, and she's smitten. Mm, mm -hmm. What do they call it whenever a straight girl falls in love with gay boys over and over? What was your high school experience? That. (laughs) What do I call myself? (laughs) They call it a good homecoming date. Um, So, Meredith Logue is not a character in the book. Really? This fucking book, they did the opposite of what usually happens in book adaptations. And instead of cutting characters, they added more and took away from the main protagonist's character development.
0: Is that why I felt like it was so weird that she was everywhere?
1: Yes. Oh my God. You were just like setting me up. It's so good. You're just setting me up to punt. So the Meredith Lowe character was an invention of Anthony Mingala while he was writing the script. And he floated the idea past Kate Blanchett to see if she'd be interested. And whenever she said, Oh my God, yes, she's Australian, um, he actually rewrote the character to be more involved in the film uh. for Kate Blanchett's involvement to be worth it. Not that I she see. asked for it, but he was like, Kate Blanchett,
0: gotta get her. Lizzie was reading this on vacation and. She was like imagining the character. She was like fan casting in her head, and I had already seen the film, and I was like, "Yeah, Kate Blanchett's character." And Lizzie was like, "Who is she?" And I was like, "Oh, you'll figure it out eventually." There's no way you could have put that together, because no,
1: yeah, it was a total, which is perfect because I kind of thought I was like, "Oh, wait, so who is she?" Marge, like <laughs> she doesn't seem like a Marge. Yeah, no, there's like exactly two female characters in the book that speak and Dickie and and Tom in the book hates both of them. He is like disgusted by women. One of the many clues that this character is gay. Um, So anyway, after this run in with Meredith, Ripley goes down to the Italian village where Dickie is living and like fakes this run in on the beach. And uh, we meet Dickie for the first time played by Jude Law, who is just really serving like Greek God status. I love that he
0: calls Ripley out for being white. (laughs) (laughs) That is something that happens in the book. This man is like a piece of paper white. Pale. Yes.
1: I always think that it's funny that like the standards of skin tone, I guess for – this is only for light-skinned people – have, like, changed over time. Like, back in the day-day-day 1600s, if you were, like, a really pale woman, it meant that you were rich and that was something desired. But now it's, like, to have the leisure time to become tan is what rich people desire. Yeah. So it's just funny how – that – and – it is funny also that being tan is kind of like a status symbol, and status symbol in this world of Dickie's creation. Yeah, he says like,
0: oh, you're so white, you're as white as Marge.
1: Who he considers like a second class citizen.
0: Yeah, he does not treat Marge as an equal either. I mean, it's such a, like a throwaway line to be like, you're as white as Marge, ah, you're so white. But it is othering in this weird way. He others both of them and it kind of makes their connection stronger, Marge and Ripley's.
1: You're right. It does cement. Because at the very beginning, Marge and Ripley do have like this, like she consoles him whenever Dickie starts to push Tom away and that hurts his feelings. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have to console him. But yeah, we also obviously meet Dickie's girlfriend Marge in this moment, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, um, the goop queen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have to read you this. Very short passage, but in the book, Ripley fucking hates Marge,
0: which is not conveyed in the movie. He likes not her for all. it seems like he really likes her until it becomes inconvenient that she's around.
1: And Marge hates Ripley by the end, which does not happen in the book. Mm. Um, but there's this really great line. So like later in the in the book, there's a scene where once Ripley and Marge are together in Venice, they're in a gondola together. And Tom thinks in his head, if she dangled those hands in the water, he hoped a shark bit them off. He ordered a dessert that he hadn't room for, but Marge ate it. Conch, Dude, it's so mean. It's <laughs> so funny. I laughed so hard when I read that line. So yeah, they kind of strike up a little conversation. Ripley ends up fibbing to Dickie, kind of. Convincing him, like, oh, I love jazz. We have all these things in common. And he eventually wins him over by doing this, like, uncanny impression of his father.
0: That's the thing in the film. I was like, why give it away this easy? Because it happens the second conversation he has with Dickie. He starts impersonating Dickie's father. And he's like, yeah, he paid me to come over here and take you over. I'm like, okay, gain his trust off the bat. But it never seemed like he was really adverse to pretending.
1: My only guess is that it was kind of a a roll of the dice to see if like, okay, well, if I can put me and Dickie versus his father, who he knows he hates, it kind of creates like this quick and fast bond. Mm. Kind of like the similar to how Dickie accidentally puts Tom and Marge on the same page by calling them pasty. <laughs> and it does work because Dickie thinks it's hilarious that his dad has, like, sent this guy over with money that they are now spending together having fun. Um, And so he takes Tom on all these, like, upper-class activities like fucking jazz clubs and martinis and sailing and all this leisure. And something else begins to grow between them. Erections. (laughs) Do I have a scene
0: for you? <laughs> <laughs> I think I know the one. Do you have any
1: brothers? No.
0: No brothers, no sisters.
1: Me neither. Or does Marge.
0: What does that mean?
1: It means we've never shared a bath. I'm cold. Can I get in?
0: No. I didn't mean with you in it. AO3 would have this scene going a different way. (laughs) (laughs) With you in it. Okay, I can describe this scene. So we've got Dickie in a bathtub... And we've got Ripley on the side of the tub, and they're playing a game of chess. A bit intimate. Just a bit. Just a bit intimate to be playing chess in a bathtub while you're naked. But, you know, who am I to say? We love intimacy between friends. And then <laughs> Ripley says, as he puts his hand in the water, I'm cold. Do you mind if I get in? And Dickie says, no. And... Ripley plays it off like, nah, I'm chanting me with you in there. Fucking that'd be gay. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> and Ripley Ripley gets out. Um, excuse me. And Dickie, you know, gets out. But
1: He's butt-ass naked. You see his dick. You see his dick. I think
0: it's weird to be like, no, you can't be in my tub with me because that's too sexual. I'm just going to stand up and have my dick
1: at your eye level. I think what would happen is that, like... Dickie missed the point a little bit. And also another dig because it's like, here, you can have my dirty bathwater mm-hmm. second-rate friend person. Yeah. Yeah, the scene is really weird. It's really charged. And something very opposite of what usually happens in a gay uh, a gay book adaptation is that I would say that the talented Mr. Ripley is like 400% more gay than the book. <laughs> oh, the film is gayer than the book. It's much more explicit. And even then, this is still pretty subtextual. Like, you could choose not to see it if you (laughs) were blind, but you know what I mean? Um, The book really makes it a little more under the surface. I asked my partner this because we watched it again
0: together for this episode. I asked her, like, do you think that people watched this and didn't take away the fact that Ripley was gay? And I think there's a case to be made that some people can overlook it if they choose to, because this came out like around like single white female, which was like a suspense thriller where one woman was obsessed with another woman to the extent that she wanted to become her. Mm. And it was framed around like mental illness and psychosis. And I guess you can make a case that this is the only thing that Ripley is going through, but it's very clear that it's layered. Yeah. You know, he puts on a persona, but he has an attraction to men specifically. Mm-hmm. And while he demolishes other men in a case to be closer to specific men, it does not mean that, like, it's just specifically that he's a criminal or some side, some sort right. of like psycho.
1: No. And how, like, the quote unquote psycho. Sis, the psychosis of Tom is handled it in relation to his queerness is one of the issues I have with this film and that will come basically in the next scene more to a head so let me continue on but from this point on the relationship between Dickie and Tom just their friendship starts to sour and there's this really awkward moment where Ripley gets caught by Dickie wearing his clothes mm-hmm. and like dancing around the room oh god and at this point in the book this does happen and at this point in the book dickie asked ripley outright if he's queer Mm. and tom ripley's reaction is that he felt faint nobody had ever said it outright to him not in this way Mm. and it's very like antagonistic like hey i'm not gay you're not gay right Mm -hmm. you know and so you know tom has to be like no like of course not so this point is kind of like the thing you're talking about with single white female it's like does ripley want to be dickie or does he want to be with dickie but like either way it's not healthy
0: There are so many parallels I'm drawing between this film and Parasite, and I think it's more evident when we get to the end of the film, where it's, you know, especially in Parasite, these people are electing to be parasites. Mm. They're electing to commit crimes, to leech off of a wealthier person. But the closer they get to that person, the closer that the audience sees how this wealthier class of people look down and are condescending towards lower-class people, so you kind of want them to fucking die.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely the case with this film. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, I mean, Dickie's an ass, for sure. He (laughs) might be fun, but he's a fucking ass. And so is Freddie Miles, Mm -hmm. uh, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. Um, But, yeah, at this point, Dickie basically breaks up with Tom and invites him on one last trip to this little place in Italy called San Remo, and they rent a boat for the afternoon, and this is where it really comes to a head. They get into an argument where essentially Dickie tells Ripley that he's sick of having him around, calls him a leech, and that he can be quite boring. And Ripley calls Dickie out basically being like, well, what about that night at the chess table? Can we see the scene? Sure, yeah. The funny thing is I'm not pretending to be somebody else, and you are. Boring. I've been absolutely honest with you about my feelings. Boring. But you, first of all, I know there's something. That evening, when we played chess, for instance, it was obvious. What evening? Oh, sure, no, no. It's too dangerous for you to take on. Oh, no, no. Well, we're brothers. Hey. You're ruining everybody. You, you want to play the sax. You want to play the drums. Which is it, Dickie? What do you actually play? Who are you? Huh? Some third-class mooch? Who are you? Who are you to say anything to me? I'm
0: stressed. I'm just this movie stresses me to no fucking end i'm telling you how to take breaks
1: yeah this was a scene that really killed me and in the book i was literally i remember exactly where i was i was because i didn't know i didn't know he was gonna kill dicky i was like this is what we're doing a third of the (laughs) way in i mean what they say to each other is horrible and ultimately there's a huge difference between the book scene and the film scene So in the book, this is basically a premeditated act. As Dickie starts to distance himself from Tom, Tom starts to consider how easy it would be to kill Dickie. Wow. (laughs) Um, And there's no, like, confrontation of anger that, like, brings them to a head. Like, they go out on the boat. Tom takes an oar and just beats his ass to Um. death. There is this, like, really scary moment where, like, uh, where Dickie doesn't go down easy and he's, like, crawling towards Ripley and he's, like, just...
0: (laughs) over
1: over and over before eventually tossing his body overboard where in this film I think this version is more upsetting because it's basically Ripley acting on romantic rejection by Dickie so Mm -hmm. his motivation for killing Dickie is like yeah he's being treated as lesser than and talked down to and being screamed at and slapped But ultimately, it is the rejection by Dickie, who he held at such a high standard, I think, that pushes him over that edge. Absolutely. But also how this film handles it is that Dickie attacks him as well and tries to strangle him. So it's kind of like a fight to survive in another way as well. So Yeah, Dickie casts the first
0: strike. Yeah. But it is like a slap and a push. And then Tom fatally hits him with an oar and then they have a final like duking out where dickie tries to strangle tom Mm -hmm. and tom you know beats him to death after that with an oar but i think dickie would have died from the first strike regardless
1: yeah this was gonna end poorly (laughs) and also he like curls up next to his dead tom like curls up next to dickie's dead body at the bottom of the boat for some time which i'm like in the film in the film in the film Which, like, what does that accomplish? I'm not trying to hear that message right now. It definitely ties it more to, like, this is a romantic rejection that is fueling Tom's anger.
0: Yeah, it it perpetuates this idea that gay people are violent in the film, whereas in the book, it's like, he's a violent person. The fact that he's gay is, like, way back in the rear view. (laughs) He's going to kill this man regardless.
1: Like, he wants this man's life. And, like, yeah, he may think he's cute, but he's like, all right, how do I do this most efficiently? Yes. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> um, and you are kind of rooting for him. You're like get him again.
0: Um, <laughs> All I could think about when I was watching this film was *Parasite*, and this specific speech that Dicky gives to Tom about being boring reminds me of that scene where the father in *Parasite* is describing the smell that poor people have. Yes, and you know the more that Dicky says "boring, boring," it just feels like how convenient it is for rich people to like equate pour people down to, like, basically nothing when they don't want them around anymore. Mm-hmm. And I just really wanted him to die. Like, immediately. So happy for him to die.
1: Oh, this death was brutal. You got your wish for sure. Which <laughs> is like this... It's so
0: easy to root for Ripley, who is a despicable criminal murderer, because they make Dickie such a fucking asshole.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, like, the amount of empathy you get for... Tom is much more than you get for Dicky. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Ripley goes back to the real world, invents a story to Marge, who's heartbroken, and starts to live his life as Dickie, going to Rome, buying clothes from Gucci. He learns to forge his signature and takes out a bunch of his money, <laughs> runs into Meredith again. <sighs> <sighs> sirens are going off in my head every time i see her dude my hot sirens are going off whenever i see her um and they go on a date together at the opera where they run into marge oh no and we also meet peter smith kingsley for the first time
0: oh yes peter smith kingsley this is i wish i could ring a bell when fucking tom should have gotten the fuck out of there i'm not saying He should have, like, dumped the body and ran because that's incriminating. I'm saying don't go to the fucking opera with Meredith. Yeah. Come on the fuck now. And he has to take off his stupid little rings. And his little glasses. Okay, first one. Strike one.
1: Strike one. Asking for it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we meet Peter Smith Kingsley, who is so into Ripley. Um, Do you recognize this guy? Yes. I don't know why. You are undoubtedly the worst pirate I've ever met. <gasps> From Pirates of the but Caribbean. But you have heard of me.
0: The one that, yes. Norrington. The the, the one that's like 35 that wants to marry Keira Knightley. Yeah, Lately. yeah,
1: yeah. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. That's the one. That's He's actually guy. very charming in this film. This actor's name is Jack Davenport. I think he does a great job. Mm. This is another example of a character that was present in the book, but had like almost no lines and was not, it was like basically an acquaintance they mentioned once and that they took and fleshed out in this whole... Uh, Interesting way. Um, So, yeah, Ripley realizes he needs to lay low. He breaks things off with Meredith in that crazy scene where he orchestrates Marge and Meredith meeting him as Tom, but also as Dickie at the cafe. Great scene. This point again, ding, ding, ding. Get the fuck out of there.
0: (laughs) Get the fucking fuck out of there.
1: His version of get the fuck out of there is just rent an apartment, like, further away from town (laughs) and, like, buy himself Christmas presents. Uh, okay, <laughs> yes. So one day, though, one of Dickie's douchebag friends, Freddie Miles, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, sniffs out his apartment and goes there thinking he's going to find the real Dickie, finds Tom, and Freddie obviously starts to catch on. He's really skeptical of Tom. And so Ripley bludgeons him to death with a bust, dumps his body outside of town. Things are escalating. Freddie sucks. Freddie can die, too. yeah. He was a jerk. He was smart, though. He sniffed him out like
0: that. Yeah, because he was doing exactly what Tom was doing. Right. Let's not be stupid. It was
1: the Gucci loafers I gave it away.
0: Meredith says at one point, it's so annoying to be friends with people who don't have money. The only people you can be friends with are people that have the same amount of money as you that despise it as well. Freddie seemed like a leech. In a different way than Tom did, where that he had a certain level of status, but didn't have the same amount of money as Dickie Greenfield. So it felt like a clocking. Like he saw Ripley mm. and was like, oh, you're coming for my gig.
1: Oh, But you're not at the same status. Yeah, but you ha- you don't have as much like fun points with these people. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. That's a good way of looking at it. It felt sure. like he was
0: constantly trying to check Ripley.
1: Maybe because he had done that himself to some extent, like mm-hmm. pretended his way into whatever status he now held.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Good eye, Sam. I like that read. Okay. So now Ripley, on top of everything, like like evading Marge, he also now has to evade the police, who are now desperately searching for Dickie Greenleaf and the killer of Freddie Miles. Uh, he does one smart thing, which I think is pretty obvious, but he writes a suicide note as Dickie, which the police find... And he has to don his Ripley persona once again and goes up to Venice on the invitation of Pita. And this is where my qualm with the film really starts to pick up again. Just leave. This is the third time he could have just left. I got to get you a bell. Just be like, get the fuck out of that. He's like, time to go to Venice and, you know, talk to the police again. I mean, it's like self-preservation to go back to being a nobody, as he puts it, or... Finagling the police and committing crimes to, like, be able to wear Gucci loafers every day. Like, <laughs> you know, it's one mm-hmm. or the other. The pull is obviously stronger in the move to Venice arena.
0: Yeah, I feel like he feels as though I've sunk enough time into creating these fancy pants relationships. I'm going to take what I can get, you know, and go to Venice and perpetuate whatever narrative so I can, you know, still say that I know these people and I'm a part of high society.
1: Yeah. He's, he's in it for till the end i guess so like i mentioned earlier the peter character in the book is just like a side character that barely speaks at all but in the film he's clearly a gay man who is interested in ripley and who's like a a great companion to ripley a great friend and a great i'm assuming they're lovers we never really see them interact uh, romantically but it's subtextual you might say So there's, like, all these scenes of, like, Peter getting to know Ripley, welcoming welcoming him into his house, being physically affectionate with him, and Ripley receiving that love and attempting to open up to Peter. But, like, at this point in the film, it's not just, like, Tom confiding his thoughts and emotions to Peter. It would be, like, he has skeletons in his closet. He has actual secrets he needs to keep hidden. So now, to the point he finally found someone who's willing to listen to him, he can't open up because... Once he opens that door, or that basement door, as he calls it, Mm -hmm. there's just too much hidden. And he knows that he won't be able to sustain that relationship. The irony of that is just hard. Um, So to condense the end of the film, Ripley gets away with it all. He evades Marge, who's the only one who's convinced he isn't innocent of Dickie's disappearance. I don't think you should skate over this part because this part's fucking scandalous. Okay. Okay. So... (laughs) We
0: love a scandal. I could run back the last, like, 17 times he should have ran away. Okay, so, like, Dickie's dad, senior Greenleaf, Mm -hmm. comes comes to Venice with a personal, a private eye. Mm -hmm. And he actually is siding with Ripley, saying, like, you're such a good influence on my son. And then Marge finds fucking... Dickie's special rings that he couldn't be without in Ripley <laughs> shit, because why the fuck would you keep that? And forget, quote-unquote,
1: oh, I just forgot about those rings. Oh,
0: you know the rings he said he couldn't live without? I don't know why we gave them to me. <laughs> and so Marge is like, you killed him. And he's like, fuck, I, I might have to kill you in the moment where he's about to kill her. Fucking Peter walks in, saves her life. And then he thinks he's caught, but the private investigator's like, yeah, so... Dickie killed himself for sure, for sure, and he has a history of violence, and his dad's going to give you his
1: trust. Yes! Oh, I forgot about that.
0: Yeah. And all you have to do is fuck off. Does he fuck off, Lizzie? Do I have to ring another bell? No, he fucking doesn't fuck
1: off. He gets himself dug into a shit more trouble. You're right, because at this point, he's like, I'm going to stay with Peter. I'm going to be a new leech onto Peter now, and Peter's happy about it. (laughs) They get on a boat to Athens— And Ripley runs into, who else? Who else is on boats? Who else is the goddess of boats? Who else
0: is haunting every boat and mode of transportation? Lizzie, can you please tell me who's on that boat?
1: Meredith Logue. Yeah, yeah. So they run into each other, and instead of just being like, oh, hi, uh, bye, he kisses her. He can't say, oh, hi, bye, because...
0: They think that Dickie Greenfield is dead.
1: Well, she... Okay, that's what confused me because the the news must not have reached her. Maybe it wasn't publicized because she wasn't like, oh, my God, I thought you were dead. She was like, oh, my God, where have you been? But her parents see him
0: and they start freaking out.
1: You're right. So then his plan of what happens next really doesn't make any sense. No. And I hate that this happens, but in the fucking end of the movie, it's a really powerful scene. The final scene in the movie... After Ripley and Meredith share a kiss, which goes against everything he should be doing and would be doing at this moment, why does he give a shit if Meredith likes him? He doesn't like women. Why is he kissing her? He's trying
0: to placate her because he knows that if he exits this boat and she goes and tells people and her family tells people that they saw Dickie Greenleaf.
1: Oh, he wants her to keep it a secret.
0: Yes, on a boat because he's supposed to have committed suicide. So he's trying to be like, oh, hush, hush. I'm in, like, witness protection. Like, no one knows I'm yeah, on this boat. Let me so give right. you a little fucking kiss.
1: But She's unfortunately. She's so stupid. She believes it, too. I know. This poor stupid idiot. I know. So beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful idiot. What is it in Great Gatsby? A beautiful fool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, so Peter sees this kiss. Mm-hmm. And so when Ripley goes back down to, uh, like, Peter's little boat room, he's, like, all pissed off. And he's like, oh, I was Meredith, huh? I saw y'all together. And Tom makes a decision. He's like, okay, I can either go try and kill Meredith real quick, <laughs> and which her, I considered.
0: Her dad, her mom, and all of the other family <laughs> that's on this boat.
1: Or I can ask you to tell me all these beautiful things about Tom Ripley, who I'm now going to have to kill again. Because he's going to have to pretend to be Dickie Greenleaf for at least a moment mm-hmm, to get through this boat off. ride.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And as Peter's, like, saying all these beautiful things that he notices about Tom, Tom strangles him to death. But but
0: as you're saying, he opens the basement door. Yeah. Even just to crack, to say I've, like, never been myself. Yeah. I don't know who myself is. Like, you can't even tell me anything about myself. And Peter's like, well, I love all these things about Tom. Ugh, and we get those final lines. Tom is beautiful. He's kind. He's talented. <laughs> Tom is crushing
1: me. Oh, Thomas crushing me. Oh. I'm like Tom sobbing. To that scene is so effective because it, it made me sick, and I've been sick ever since I saw it.
0: I had to put my face like down into my lap. I'm doing that currently. That's why it sounds so stupid. We're <laughs> like, like, oh, I'm covering it's my whole
1: horrible. face. <sighs> so, Peter, who is willing to accept Ripley, not as Dickie, but as Ripley, is ultimately punished. In the end, by a fellow queer person whom he trusts because Ripley fears he will get too close and actually see into the basement of his soul. Which mm. is a fucking crazy murderer. It's a fucking morgue.
0: <laughs> his basement body is a morgue.
1: Count. Almost body as much count. of a body count as Scott Pilgrim. Yes. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the
0: callback. I appreciate <laughs> that.
1: He's trying to lighten the mood. So yeah, I want to talk about how the book handles it differently. I and would the, love to hear that. The book... Ending, if we could call the ending of this film sickening and not like the good kind of sickening, not like the RuPaul sickening. Come on, season six. (laughs) (laughs) But I would call the book ending triumphant. Mm. So basically, Peter's not a thing. He makes it through the private investigator and he actually forges a will and signs it as Dickie saying like, Tom gets everything classic so his dad's like all right tom you get everything bye (laughs) tom puts himself on a boat to greece and as he's like pulling up to shore he sees a few police officers there waiting on the deck and he's he has this like whole like heart to heart with himself like all right it was a good run you know you had all these times and you're just gonna you're not gonna cry you're just gonna go and and take what's coming to you so he, like, walks up, walks down the gangplank over to the police officers and is, like, holds <laughs> his wrist out for cups and they're, like, hello, sir, how are you? They're just, like, off-duty cops. They're, like, any fruit or anything <laughs> yeah, right. you want to Uber? Board. Taxi? <laughs> and he gets away with it fucking Scott free And he has this, like, moment of elation where he's, like, I get to be me forever and I'm rich now. <laughs> Holy shit. So Tom Ripley is, like, this... Little fucking hero. But, yeah, that's the first book of the series. The first book of the series. So more fuck shit happens, I'm so sure. Uh, I'll let you know. I'm going to read them. Yeah. But, yeah, how different that is from the movie ending. Like, the movie ending chose... So, in the film, he is drawn to murder because of his attraction to Dickie and in spite of his attraction to Peter. So it kind of seems like the film is trying to point Ripley's queerness... As the reason for his being violent. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. They I chose like to it. do that because the book, the book ain't like that. <laughs> Ripley's a hero and he gets more adventures and he lives on a rich, little, happy European guy. Yeah,
0: the only person that he murders not out of like some sort of queer
1: panic is Freddie. Yeah, so much. If I could just like take the book and the movie and like meld them together maybe this Andrew Scott version will be better. Because I do think having a a gay man play Tom Ripley might bring a little more of the humanity of the book to the screen that I don't see in this film. Mm -hmm. TBD.
0: Yeah, no, I think Matt Damon definitely brought the criminality, the like imposter persona. But the queerness I felt like, although it was overtly written in the script, was not conveyed enough in the character and also was like hypercharged in the script, which felt really fucking fake and weird. Mm-hmm. And I think it's still astonishing with this amount of, you could call it subtext, but was just overt text that audiences chose not to believe that this was about <laughs> gay men.
1: <laughs> I know this never enters into like... You know, the movie's about gay people, but not about gay people yeah. world. Like, this was just on the fringe of a movie we might consider doing.
0: Yeah, he wants to steal his identity. It doesn't mean he wants to fuck him. It's like, both of those things can be true.
1: Yeah. No, if you watch this movie and you don't feel the gayness, like, are you even watching the movie? <laughs> 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 uh, anyway, on to the reception. So, with a budget of $40 million, this film was wildly successful and grossed $128 million. Jeez. And was a huge, criti- huge critical success as well. It was nominated for a slew of filmmaking awards, including five Oscars for art direction, costume design, original score, adapted screenplay, and Best Supporting Actor for Jude Law. Not a nom for Matt Damon, though. Interesting. But Matt Damon is wicked smart. <laughs> <laughs> that he is. Uh, the best review I heard of this film is um, after viewing this film, Tommy Wieso was so emotionally moved that he vowed to make a film just as, if not more, compelling. This film would become The Room.
0: Oh, God damn. <laughs> Just as emotionally charred. I hope Kate Blanchett charged. keeps herself up at night, knowing she had anything to do with that. One degree of separation between Kate Blanchett and the room.
1: Oh my god, so good. Oh Sam, holy fuck! I know you. I woof. We picked apart that damn film, though.
0: Nothing will make me feel this way—not the scariest scary movie. I had to like watch. I'm not even exaggerating. I had to watch some of this through the reflection of my furniture. Like this is I, a horror movie. I was like,
1: and I'd already seen it. I knew exactly Stressed. what was gonna happen, but god the fuck damn. The score really fucking put me on edge. Also, I will get I will give this to Matt Damon. There was like the moments that he was considering killing someone, he would just get this like crazy little face crack like no blink child murderer look
0: you're a fucking crazy person you know fucking he was crazy yeah
1: no and i'm like oh my god bitch run (laughs) one reviewer the new york times called tom ripley a demon (laughs) twink i said get him Uh, the three (laughs) kids all right let's score this real quick Sam, how do the subtextual scores work? Uh, how the subtextual score works is that we rate the
0: film on how gay is it and how good is it, and we average those scores out of 10 and get an overall subtextual score.
1: Love it. So, Sam, how gay was this movie? Nine. Nine?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is it because of the dick and ass? <laughs> is it
0: because of the good old dick and ass? They... Wrote canonically queer characters and just didn't let us see them kiss. We saw fucking penis and we didn't see them kiss.
1: We heard them embracing. Granted, one was trying to kill the other. But it was an embrace before it was a death embrace. Yeah. Oh, You know what? Eight and a half. I'm going to give it a seven. Sam, how good is this movie? I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask you how much you liked it. <laughs> so how good is it? I'd say uh five coward (laughs) the thing about this movie it is technically good i'm gonna give it a seven because i have been sick to my stomach for a week you said you'd never watch it again it is a good film it did what it was supposed to do i don't think i was supposed to want to be like oh god can't wait to see that again it did what it said out to do okay it said what it said the talented mr ripley has a overall subtextual score of 6.9 69. <laughs> Is
0: that better or worse than Interview with the Vampire?
1: This film had a significantly higher score than Interview with the Vampire, which had a 5.5. I'll so your it. hate for Tom Cruise really maxed out <laughs> and <laughs> won mm-hmm. this time.
0: Good, good.
1: God, if only Tom Cruise had been in this. No,
0: Ah, no. uh, Sam,
1: okay, I have a challenge for you to end the episode. I'm scared. I challenge you. I will read the book. To do a book adaptation, you want to read the book. Here you go. Oh yay! I thought that's what you're gonna ask. A book adaptation. What do you? I want you to cover a film on the podcast that is a book adaptation. Oh, Did, I thought you're unclear. Asking. Lee, was that unclear? No, I got, I got it. <laughs> I thought you're giving me this book
0: and we we're like adapt it
1: <laughs> with Andrew Scott. I was like, I'm sorry, oh, I don't yeah. think I
0: could get Kate Blanchett. <laughs>
1: <Frances." laughs> Okay. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I can, yeah I can read a book and do a movie yeah for sure
1: <laughs> I can see the glaze look in your eyes okay friends it's 1am <laughs> go have a martini on us yeah. we'll see y'all next week for another episode <laughs> bye
0: thanks for listening to this episode we hope you enjoyed it if you'd like to keep this content ad free please consider supporting us at patreon.com subtextualpod subtextual pod see you next week